Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you and to have you with us this morning. If you have a Bible, open up with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 13 this morning. Psalm chapter 13. We're in the middle of a sermon series called Shadow Talk, and what we've been doing is, is we've tried to take a little bit of a different approach for this season of Advent. And so often in the season of Advent, which is the four weeks before Christmas for Christians, a time of reflection and waiting and anticipation for the Christian church, um, we often focus on the four themes of Advent. And many of you are probably familiar with this piece hope, joy, and love. And, and we've done this in the past. And, and a few weeks ago, or a little bit while ago, I was, I was brainstorming some leaders here at the church, and I was like, I want to do something different for Advent this year. And I'm going to blame it on Michelle this morning, because Michelle was my primary conversation partner. Uh, I was like, I want, to, I want to do something kind of different. And she said, what if we explored the concept of darkness during Advent? I was like, that's weird. That's different. That sounds like us. Sounds challenging, sounds like it would be fun, and, and so that's what we've been doing. Uh, we, we noticed a couple weeks ago that, that darkness is really the proper context for Advent. It is to a people waiting in deep darkness, Isaiah tells us, that the news of a child being born, the son being given to us, comes. It's a world enveloped in darkness into which, John says, a light has come, a light that the darkness cannot overcome. Darkness is the context for Advent. And Advent gives us a very unique opportunity as Christians to live counterculturally. We live in a culture that wants to go from light to light to light to light, from positive emotion to positive emotion to positive emotion to positive emotion. It wants to ignore or repress or put aside or distract ourselves from the darkness that's often around us, that's present in our world, that's sometimes present inside of us. And Advent says instead, spend some time waiting, thinking, reflecting. And perhaps even in that reflection, we'll find some blessings, that there might be blessings to be found in the darkness. That perhaps it's not wholly a bad thing, a part of our lives where God has no presence and is not involved and is not active in any way. If you look in the scriptures, it's pretty clear that the scriptures use the metaphor of light and dark um, to represent basically good things and bad things, positive things and negative things. And the evidence for this is quite overwhelming. There seems to be a pronounced bias in the scriptures, favoring light and opposing darkness. But there's another reading possible of the scriptures. I mean, there's another way of looking through the sacred scriptures God has entrusted to us by the Holy Spirit and seeing that in many ways, the Holy One reveals himself in the dark. This is a theme that the Christian mythics, um, the, the, the Christian mystics, excuse me, the, that tradition, the, the mystical tradition has held on to for such a long time. And, and again, if you just go through scripture, another reading is possible where you start to see the way that God works in darkness. Creation begins in darkness. The, the promise to Abraham that God would make a great nation out of him is made after terrifying and deep darkness fell on him, we're told. It was at night when the promise was renewed to Abraham's son Isaac. Isaac's son Jacob had his name changed to Israel. If you remember this 
following an all-night wrestling match with an angel. And we've talked about how most of us want to kind of escape the darkness. Who would not escape the darkness if we had a chance, if we had the ability to, but perhaps one would not escape if they were willing to walk around with a limp for the rest of their life to receive the blessing. And this is kind of the shadow talk that we've been engaged in. The Hebrew slaves escaped Pharaoh's prison camp at night. Their encounter with the covenant-making God at Mount Sinai, we're told, comes from a voice that came out of the darkness. The Jesus story, the Christmas story, which we're familiar with, many of us, begins with angels appearing in the dead of the night to speak to shepherds. Jesus' well-known statement about needing to be born again to Nicodemus. Remember, this it comes under the cover of darkness at night to give Nicodemus safety. Indeed, Jesus himself was born in a cave, most likely enveloped in darkness. And Jesus is resurrected in a cave, most likely enveloped in darkness. This is one of those interesting moments, one of the most powerful moments of history that we have no real inside look into. The actual moment when Jesus was resurrected, like there's still a stone in front of the empty tomb. That actual moment. It it happens in the quiet. It happens in the dark. Jesus' followers after him repeatedly over and over and over again, they receive angelic visitations in the nighttime to encourage, to inform. It does seem that perhaps there are blessings to be had in the darkness. Or as Isaiah says, there are treasures God has to give in the darkness. Last week, we talked about one specific blessing that we might receive in the darkness. And and I said it was the ability to enroll in the school of unlearning. Because what happens for many of us is prompted by grief or pain or some uh, some other uncomfortable situation in our lives, we often are given the opportunity to unlearn certain things about God that we had picked up along the way. False ideas, false notions, false assumptions, false deals we had made with God. It's often in our time of sorrow, not in the time of light, where we are able to reflect on what is or is not true about the things that we think and believe and act on in regards to God. Last week, I I referenced a scholar who who said that oftentimes we believe in God and we believe strongly, but we often believe strongly in misunderstandings of God. So we trust that God is a healer, but we rely on our own sense of need, our own sense of health. We we trust that God will provide for us, but but we rely on our own sense of what we need provision for. It's in the darkness where we have to ask these questions. We have to kind of come to terms with a, a, a personal story that I shared where what contracts have we made with God? I'll do this if you do that. And then when that doesn't happen, we encounter this kind of dark night of the soul, if you will, and, and we say, okay, I've got to unlearn some things about God. And it's a gift. We're, we, we explored this last week. It turns into a gift because what happens is at the end of this process, we're left with more of God and less of anything not God. And that is solely and always and fully a good thing. Even if it's painful or uncomfortable or takes time that we might not otherwise want to take time doing. The scriptures are not unfamiliar with people walking through times of sorrow, with people practicing what we're calling shadow talk. And and Psalm 13 is an excellent example of this. It's a psalm of lament. 
It's a person who's going through a tough time. I want to read it with you this morning. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You have here a psalmist who is confronting and facing and wrestling with his deepest and darkest emotions. You have a psalmist who is unafraid to do the shadow talk that we're saying we might find blessings in. And I want to explore another one of these blessings that we might find from times of grief and pain and sorrow, from times of darkness and not just light. Last week we said perhaps this is a time where we learn more things about God that put us in a better place to thrive in the future. This week I want to suggest that it's often in the shadows, it's often in the darkness in which we are equipped in a unique way in order to be able to bless the people around us. It's often the most difficult things we go through that shape us the most profoundly in order to be used by God to bless others, to meet the needs of others. It's often in our own individual heartbreak, in our own individual laments, where we come the closest to understanding and knowing the heartbreak of the world around us. And if we spend time being honest and doing the wrestling and the reflection, then we'll be equipped to address that heartbreak of the world, I think, in a much more profound and beautiful and good way. There's a 19th century psychologist into the 20th century, Carl Jung. Uh, And Carl Jung has a quote that, that goes like this. He says, Knowing your own darkness is often the best method for dealing with the darkness of other people. Knowing your own darkness is often the best method of dealing with the darkness of other people. He says, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscience. We, we often talk about the value of enlightenment, but, but rarely do we talk about the value perhaps of endarkenment, to continue making up words throughout this series. But the great mystics of the Christian tradition have always described this as part of the journey into our knowledge and relationship with God. Unfortunately, we are too interested in God always turning on the lights for us that we no longer get excited or lean into or curious about the times when it seems the lights have been turned off for us. Carl Jung's an interesting guy. Um, He was a a psychologist, psychiatrist, psychoanalysis. He was not a Christian, um, nor was he anti-Christian, though, as, as you might hear in, in certain places. He was very critical of his Christian heritage, so he grew up, he was a pastor's kid, which uh, makes some sense, okay? Uh, just maybe that in itself can explain some things for some people. His, his dad and five uncles were all Reformed ministers, and so again, if you get a sense of this kind of family dynamic, he grew up disillusioned by the Christianity he was exposed to, particularly because in his 
dad and uncles, he saw people who were unhappy and unhealthy. And this plays into a lot of the psychology that he ends up doing. He's one of the most profound and formative psychologists who've existed. Much of what we think about psychology and much of what happens to psychiatry is influenced in one way or another by Jung. But one of his big themes was that, that human beings are meant for and are supposed to strive towards wholeness. And wholeness only comes for Jung when we pull together the various aspects of our life. And what human beings normally want to do is we want to take that which is negative or that which is shameful or that which scares us and we want to push it away, we want to repress it, we want to ignore it. And, and often what we do is we project it. I don't know if you're familiar with this idea in psychology of projection, that that which we don't like about ourselves, consciously or unconsciously, we project and blame others for or call out others. I don't know if you're familiar with politics at all. There is this group of politicians in America, from the president to congressmen, and and you don't even have to pick a side for this, but you've probably seen this, right, where they vehemently accuse someone else of doing something, this and this and this and this, and this is their motives, and these are the things they're doing, and you're sitting back and going, wow, this is like an object lesson in projection, Right? I mean, these are all the things that you've been doing. These are all the motives that, that you have. Well, Jung and others say projection comes out of this inability right, to deal with our darkness, to understand that which is part of what Jung would call our shadow self, that which perhaps we're ashamed of or which causes us pain. And often religion gets kind of sucked in towards this project of unwholeness. Religion, I think, in its most toxic forms is used to, to do this, to keep us from becoming integrated people. Um, I, I read an article uh, a couple months ago that talked about um, the fact that you can have Christians and Christian pastors who are deeply godly people, who know much about God and the scriptures, who seem to genuinely love Jesus and love other people, and yet be crazy dysfunctional. I don't know if you've met anybody like this. But if you kind of follow celebrity pastors, the illustrations abound, right? And if you know Christians and know Christians well, this probably abounds in your knowledge and experience. You know someone who loves God, they're deeply godly, and yet they're dysfunctional. They exist with all of these kind of contradictions. They're holy, but not whole. They're spiritually mature and yet emotionally repressed. They're biblically faithful and psychologically maladjusted. And the article argued that one of the reasons for this is because our spiritual formation as Christians is often reduced in such a way that it doesn't address who we are really as human beings. And so in spiritual formation, when we try to shape Christians and grow Christians, we often address a couple key things. We address character, moral development. We address doctrinal knowledge. But we often don't address uh, other parts of being a human being, like our embodiment, what it means to have a body and interact with other people who have bodies. We often don't address what it means to have brains and think through the way those brains function and don't function. We often don't address interpersonal relationships and the way that these can really get us into traps of behavior and thinking that are not healthy. And his... 
his conclusion, his prescription was that we need spiritual formation that brings together doctrinal instruction, moral development, along with psychological healing, bodily healing, healing of the mind, the way we think, the way we're patterned and wired. We need an approach that engenders, he says, not only holiness, but also wholeness. But religion, again, at its most toxic, can function in a way that Miriam Greenspan calls spiritual bypassing. And, and when she talks about spiritual bypassing, she's talking about using religion in such a way as to avoid negative emotions. Grief, pain, sorrow. She says we often, out of fear of our own darkness or the darkness around us, we turn to artificial light. And that looks different for all kinds of different people, but that can be work, work workaholism. That can that can be things like drugs, sex, self numbing through entertainment, busyness, running from one meeting to another meeting to another meeting, from one person to another person to another person. Anything, right, to avoid having to think the thoughts that come into our head when it's quiet. Or when we wake up at night. This is why we often have nightstands full of distractions. Because when we wake up at night on our bed, it's often the questions and the thoughts that we would rather not address. Or rather not think through. And so we turn on that light. We grab that book. We get up and turn on that TV. And a religion that's been used to spiritually bypass things that you might otherwise deal with in the darkness is one that keeps people, I think, from being whole. Is one that keeps people from meeting very interesting teachers. One that keeps people from being fully healthy, fully able to follow Jesus. I think it is true what Young says. It's only by knowing our own darkness that we're able to help others in their darkness. We can think about Jesus himself and and the truth and celebration that we so happily embrace during Christmas, which is that the Son of God, God himself, became a human being, was given the name Jesus. God, though, who knows no sin, who knows no darkness, steps fully into our world, becomes embodied, gets drawn up into the messiness and the drama of our world. And Jesus most assuredly knows the darkness. Right after his baptism, Jesus is taken out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Alone and by himself. Jesus, without many of the technologies that we use to produce this kind of artificial light in service of spiritually bypassing certain feelings or emotions, stays up late at night often or gets up early in the morning often and goes off by himself to pray. And perhaps the most powerful story we get about Jesus and his ability to relate to our human experience, we have a picture in the Gospels of Jesus before he is crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember the intense amount of pain and suffering and struggle that Christ is in in this moment. And it's it's hard to 
pierce behind the curtain and know exactly what's going on inside of Jesus. But we do know that whatever is happening expresses itself physically. This is often a way that you and I can get in touch with our emotions. It's sometimes difficult to talk about our emotions or understand them, but, but one of the ways that psychologists will say is, is often helpful is to understand them as bodily sensations. What does anxiety feel like? Where is fear held in your body? And Jesus, as he's struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember, he starts to sweat. And he starts to sweat so much, and in such suffering, he starts to sweat blood. This is an actual physiological condition for someone under extreme stress. Jesus doesn't avoid this. Jesus doesn't short-circuit it. He experiences it. He goes through it. And in so doing, he's able to come out on the other side and fully embrace that which God had planned for him, that which would lead to the salvation of the whole world that which would bring forgiveness and freedom from our sins for you and for myself. It's those who often embrace the darkness who are most equipped to deal with the darkness of other people. The holiday seasons in general, Advent disregarded, right, are often a time of pain for many people. It's often a time where we remember those whom we have lost. I know for me, December is often a time where I think through the year. And in particular, I kind of compare where I'm at in December to where I had imagined I could be in January at the beginning of the year. I don't know if you're like this, right? In January, I'm like, okay, by December, we walk around with a 12-pack. Okay, I'm of a church of 5,000 people. All these things are going to, to happen in my life, and I'm going to commit myself to these sort of plans and this discipline and this routine, and then December comes and we kind of look back on the things that we haven't quite accomplished yet or the things that we didn't commit ourselves to the way we had hoped to. The holiday season, the end of the, the year, is, is a natural time for us to think through who we are, where we are, and then not far behind that are the thoughts of failure and disappointment, not being enough. For many of us, it's just a couple weeks away from being forced to encounter situations at family get-togethers or parties with friends where we have to deal with or think about or encounter a person who has caused us harm or whom we've caused harm. And again, it's much, we'd much rather bypass these emotions, bypass these feelings, But in doing so, again, I think we really are left with the only options of repressing them or distracting ourselves or using other addictions and activities to ignore them or most cynically perhaps to project them onto other people. It does not a healthy human being make. And I think this was the point of that that article on spiritual formation I mentioned, right? I mean, we, we can as Christians just solely talk about doctrines and, and learn more and more and more about the Bible and about God, and that's a good thing. And, and we can't talk about character and the things we should be doing and should not be doing, and that's a good thing. But if we also ignore what it means to be a human, which is to deal with these doubts and fears and pains and griefs, anxieties and depressions, if we ignore that, then we shouldn't be surprised when we have Christians who are not fully whole. 
who perhaps are holy and yet not whole, or perhaps spiritually mature but emotionally emotionally repressed and small, who find themselves being able to, to lecture on a book of the Bible, who find themselves being able to put in the hours at the volunteer work, and yet in a relationship that's dysfunctional, find themselves constantly reacting in the same way, not being able to understand what it is about this relationship or the patterns or the way they're thinking in their mind that leads them to this constant behavior, this constant way of thinking. But the the scriptures are full of people who are not afraid of the dark, who are not afraid of the shadow talk, who say, no, no, I want to address it. I want to ask questions about it. I want to deal with it. I want the blessing that comes from wrestling with the angel all night, even if it comes with a limp for the rest of my life. This is what you see in so many of the Psalms, like the one we read in Psalm 13, these these Psalms of individual lament. How long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul, have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? These are often questions that if we're feeling in a place where we have these questions, they're either often implicitly, we're told, not quite allowed in a church setting, or that our faith is somehow defunct if we don't get over them in a right timeline. It's, it's one of the interesting aspects of um, the diagnostic aspect of psychology. Um, that, that So for instance, if, if your child passes away, um, it's not called depression for you to grieve, right? I mean, this is just a normal human experience. But, but according to certain different people whom you talk to, the, um, often the guidelines is about two months if you're still experiencing these emotions, and now it's become clinical depression. And it's like, what an arbitrary kind of line to draw, right? It's still the same reaction to a hor- horrible event that causes a very natural human response. This is how the church often works, right? It's okay to have these questions or have these doubts or have these pains, but there's a timeline to this. And if, I mean, if it keeps going for a certain amount of time, we're all going to just kind of get tired of you, and we don't like that. It's kind of forcing us to address our own doubts and our own issues and our own questions and our own pains. But the Scriptures give us example after example after example of someone who really digs into it, who looks for the the blessing who looks for that which God might be teaching them. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him. I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I'll sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. When you and I take the time, when we embrace the gift of Advent that it gives us to take the time to express, acknowledge, recognize, ask questions about our own darkness, I can guarantee you it will allow us to be positioned and used by God more faithfully than the rest of the world. It was Paul in 2 Corinthians who says, I don't want you to be ignorant of what I've gone through. We, we went through the struggle and it was so bad at one point that we despaired of life itself. And, and then Paul uses that to go into kind of a teaching passage where he says, but this is how God works. God comforts people so that those people can comfort others. It's your time spent in the cave that will allow you to hold space with, give hope to, 
and minister to others in the cave. It's when you embrace and understand your individual heartbreak that you're drawn closer to a world that's full of heartbreak. Three ways in particular, I think, that God blesses us in the darkness with an ability to relate to and help others in a unique way. The first is that for Christians who encounter the darkness, who engage in this shadow talk, often what happens is that they learn how to speak honestly. And this is important. This is priority number one if you ever want to help somebody else. I, I learned this working with kids, that, that kids can smell inauthenticity. inauthenticity. I'm not going to be able to say that, but I'm going to be authentic about it. A mile away, right? I mean, if you're, if you're lying to them, if you're not fully who you say you are, they don't care. You have no ability to, to reach them. But if you, can, if you can just be honest, and the good and the bad and the ugly, kids are willing to listen. And as I've grown up and now spent more time with adults than kids, I've learned that adults are often a lot like kids. Adults often have a hard time hearing, listening to, gleaning, trusting people who they feel aren't being necessarily honest. And sometimes it's hard to be honest. It's, it's a skill to learn how to be honest, particularly when we're sometimes talking about the deepest, most painful, most avoided parts of our own personhood. It's a gift that we're given, the ability to be honest in the darkness. And that honesty is something that will pay off over and over and over and over again in your relationships with other people. Another gift we're given in the darkness is the gift of patience. It's only those who walk through Advent who are fully ready to not only celebrate Christmas, but also stand with, sit next to, be with someone else in a moment of waiting and anticipation and expectation. It's only someone who's, who's battled their own demons, who's had their own night in the Garden of Gethsemane, who's written their own psalm, like Psalm 13, it's only someone like that who's able to understand patience, who has that, that muscle, that virtue built up in them, and is able to extend that to other people, to say, you don't have to meet my timeline or anyone else's timeline and your healing and your growth and your progress forward, and is able to say, trust me, you can be patient too. I've walked down that road. I've, I've experienced that. There's a type of patience that's revolutionary. This is, I think, what Advent most fully embodies, a type of patience that's not just being passive or being idle, but it's an active patience. It's an on-the-edge-of-your-seat patience, a waiting and a listening type of patience, almost like a stubborn re- resistance. And it's a gift. And it's a gift that will bless others and will bless the world. And finally, this, this third gift, I think, that we find in the darkness that pays off when it comes to blessing other people is the gift of empathy. 
This is one of, I think, the most underlooked gifts that were given in the incarnation, in, in Jesus and God sending his son for us. We have a high priest who's not unlike us, who understands what it means to be a human being, who in every way was tempted, every way like us except for sin. In my dark nights, in my moments of pain and grief and sorrow, knowing that Christ is not far from me, is not unable to understand or empathize with my suffering, brings me hope and joy and peace. It's hard to explain and to put into words. And this is what happens to you and I as well. When we embrace our own darkness, when we understand our own darkness, we're more empathetic people. We're less likely to cast condemnation and judgment on others. We're more likely to give them the benefit of the doubt. We're more likely to extend patience to them. We're more willing to to think about our own responsibility in situations. We're less likely to project and to blame and to shame and to condemn. In this way and in many others, it's often time in the shadows which produces a people most fully able to bless the world around them. If we were creating things from scratch, we would surely enjoy a life with no negatives. But it's not the world we have been given. It's not the world we live in. And ignoring it does no good to anybody. There is no resurrection without the cross. There is no Easter without Lent. There is no Christmas without Advent. And it's a people who have been shaped by Advent, who have been given the gifts of honesty and patience and empathy, who are able to join Jesus, I think, most effectively as he reaches out to the world, as he continues his mission of seeking and saving that which is lost, of bringing freedom to the slaves, hope to those who have none, light in places of darkness. And so this Advent season, this Sunday in particular, I invite you to instead of reaching for some artificial light or engaging in spiritual bypassing, using your religion to ignore the darkness, to not have to think or express or recognize it, I instead encourage you to continue thinking through what blessings might be found there. Not only might we learn more about God, but in fact, this very moment, these very seasons, this particular point of pain or grief or sorrow or frustration in your life, it just might be one of the ways God will most powerfully use you to bless the world. What a gift that is. It's a gift that we should not ignore. It's a gift that we should be careful not to pass by. It's one to embrace and to be joyful for. And so I invite you to reflect on this with me as we come to the table this morning as we continue to celebrate the season of Advent.